0: Howdy, Rob Lee here, and we're going to get back to the truth in this art. But I want to do a little exercise with you. As you know, the truth in this art is an audio experience, so I'm going to ask you to do something a little different this time and visualize with me. I'm thrilled to reintroduce you to Forged Eatery, a true gem that captures the essence of farm to table dining in Baltimore. At Forged Eatery, they have mastered the art of sourcing local and seasonal ingredients, resulting in a menu that will leave you in awe. Their commitment to quality and to flavor is simply unmatched. Picture yourself, see, it's the visual, picture yourself uh, savoring their mushroom stew, a comforting and aromatic dish that transports you to a world of culinary bliss. The depths of flavor and the carefully selected ingredients will tantalize your taste buds. You can swap out and insert the focaccia, which is heavenly, or the irresistible cornmeal fried happy oysters. Each bite is a celebration of culinary mastery. Forged Eatery goes beyond being simply a restaurant. It's an immersive experience where the menu evolves with the seasons. Each visit promises a new and exciting experience for your taste buds, making every moment unforgettable. So fellow food fans, fellow food lovers, it's time to discover the magic of Forged Eatery. Let their innovative approach to dining and their passion for locally sourced ingredients transport you to a world of culinary excellence. Don't miss out on an extraordinary dining experience. Plan your visit to Forged Eatery today and let your taste buds revel in the true flavors of the season. It's time to indulge in a gastronomic adventure that will leave you craving for more. For more information, visit Forgedeatery.com. to the truth in us art, I am your host, Rob Lee. Thanks for listening, sharing and subscribing to this podcast. And if you want to continue to support us in other ways, we have a Patreon and you can always leave a five star review on your favorite podcast platform. It goes a long way in helping support and sustain this podcast and get those stories out there. Today, I have the privilege of being in conversation with a policy mover and a data shaker committed to social impact. Please welcome Suk Chung, the president of the Baltimore Civic Fund. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Rob. So glad to be here.
0: Thank you for coming on and, and making the time. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, we, we started this initial conversation maybe back in, in March. I'm like, all
1: right, yes. and what's yes. going to be
0: the perfect time to make it happen. And now we're here. So this is going to be um, really cool. And, um, so sort of the, the start off, I like to, you know, like, sort of lay that foundation, um, as to who the person is and sort of what their sure. story is a bit. And, you know, I gave sort of the the cut and paste intro, and I like Mm -hmm. to give you the space to introduce yourself and I have a second sort of bullet point in there. But I want to give you the space to introduce yourself, because I think that there's a lot of uh, strength and a lot of power in that, you know, but people introduce me. They'll say Rob Lee, And I'm like, I'm the voice and the talent behind (laughs) the truth in this art. Very weighty. Right. So I think it's something about that. So if you will, please, the floor is yours
1: yes thank you well i'm so honored rob i just seeing myself in this space just again i was surprised but also delighted just having seen the guests that you've had before and i've never seen myself as an artist but i've been told i dabble in the fiber arts and so i'm definitely seeing myself as a uh blossoming artist and um my name is hasuk uh like you said and i am the president of the baltimore civic fund and i um have the pleasure of just working day to day to think about like big social problems in the city to help the mayor and the agencies, you know, think of creative ways for tackling some of the hardest issues that confront our residents. And so prior to uh, coming up to Baltimore, I was, uh, I served as a deputy mayor for health and human services, as my kids would say, just, you know, uh, tackling some of the most persistent. Long social, uh, you know, service issues that confront our residents like hom- homelessness, homelessness, and uh, mental health services, and access to affordable health care. So that's kind of my, my thing. I think and dream of a day when all of our kids and residents in Baltimore can have just access to everything they need to thrive and um, be the person they want to be in all aspects of life, including the arts, including um in the jobs and you know in the creative space. And so I get to do that every day. So I it's just a thrilling job and I have a great team and I'm just um so honored to be able to do this work.
0: It's great. And uh you're you're doing the the much needed work, you know in your team. <laughs> and uh yeah, you know, and in sort of being here, being from here and being invested in the the community, you want, Mm -hmm. you know, people to have the the best possible situation to really thrive. And, you know, when in Mm -hmm. talking to artists and talking to people where those sort of, Intersections of arts, culture, and community all kind of come together. Mm-hmm. All of these things matter. So, a lot of the work that you're doing and what the uh, Baltimore Civic Fund and your your team are doing it it matters to various people, various people within the community.
1: Absolutely, I wholeheartedly agree. And if you think about it, I mean, I think some of these challenges that we confront as residents and as people in the space of creative arts and creative, you know, uh, problem solving some of these things are just unsolvable and so I think the more creative you are and think outside the box and and the more kind of the meeting of the minds to bring different strategies different ways of thinking uh about some of our persistent you know concerns that our residents are confronting I I just think what better way to tackle some of these things because in my 24 years I've been working you know we still haven't addressed child poverty and I I get asked all the time, like after 24 years, you don't see anything. I go, I certainly do. But yes. politics and, and um, you know, a four year cycle and uh, cash always, you know, get in the way of all of us wanting to do the right thing. So, you know, unless we have people like you and I persistently asking the question and having this conversation, we're not going to solve, you know, any of the things that we need to solve for.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the one of the big things you mentioned there with all of the big things, uh, mm-hmm. the the meeting of the minds, I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, being being able to have different folks, different perspectives and being able to to shake things up, you know, policy mover, data shaker. You know,
1: yes. Yes.
0: It's it's important. Um, yes. So I want, I want to step backwards a little bit. Um, and so I'd like to get sort of the the origin story. Um, I, I'm I'm into comics. I'm a nerd. <laughs> I will. I will say you know for some people will say it's their um what is their canon event you know for the spider-man oh, Carlos. I love
1: it. yes
0: so what would you say is like an early experience that yep. kind of you know maybe shaped or maybe directed or even sparked that interest in sort of social advocacy and and ultimately maybe something that led you to the the role that you're in now the baltimore civic fund
1: Oh, that's a great question. And I am, because I have young teens, I am obsessed with the Marvel. And like, I, I love watching the origin stories of all the superheroes. And boy, do I have an origin story? I was thinking about this and, um you know, I, I have to like shout out my mom who has been just a great role model in in service to others. Um, I grew up watching her as a role model working in the nursing home space and just being a ner- nurse's assistant, but also just caring for seniors and just the most tender, loving way. And I just having her bring me to volunteer, play the piano, read books and just seeing her kind of tender touch. I just I, I've been around that most of my life. And so When I uh, went to graduate school, you know, I always had a a gravitation. You could ask my kids. I I just love babies. And I, like, I see a baby and kind of do this, you know, crazy, can I hold your baby thing? And I've always loved babies. And after graduate school, I went to BU to get a master's in nonprofit management. Was it... uh, I, you know, afterwards, I started right away and working in public health at the Boston Public Health Commission and worked on a couple of, um, really at the time, what I would deem innovative in the sense that these, you know, programs weren't being implemented. We launched the universal home visitation program, knowing that when newborns come into a family, how fragile and how tender, like the bonding, but also just life skills that you need to really be able to create a home environment and a bond with that child and you know if like uh formula companies get it and send you know massive products to their home why can't we you know so we we created a universal home visitation project um and we took it to skills city you know statewide you got a home visit as soon as a baby came home and gave you the education about parenting and bonding and that was amazing. And I think I, I just kind of got, I remember just thinking like every child born in Massachusetts is going to get something I wrote and to help their mom or dad, like, you know, bond with them better, uh, be better equipped to be the parent they want to be so that their child can have access to everything they dream or imagine, no matter what zip code, right? No matter where you are born and, um, It was exhilarating because it was at a very macro scale. You know, there were certainly challenges taking anything new and and make it a statewide program. But um, I think that was like the, that was like what really bit me and like drew me in. But it wasn't until I moved to D.C. where advocacy and, you know, like every, every, you know this, Rob, every interest group has lobbyists. Every. (laughs) <laughs> so advocacy and, and lobbying to me are the same thing. And when I worked at a think tank um, called Zero to Three and a, a benchmark book came out that published uh, brain scans of, of other, well, maybe three or four month old babies around their mass capacity and their brain and what that showed in terms of the growth of the brain wiring and synapses that really form a child's ability to form language, form relationships, you know, um create trusting bonds, you know, an image of a child in an impoverished zip code was just blank. Mm. While the density in a brain scan of a more affluent family with access to books and Literature and and parents who engage in conversation, their brains looked so different. And and recognizing that most of those wirings and synapses, you know, form how you succeed as you grow up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that like just stopped me in my tracks and thought, oh my goodness, here's the evidence that really show like it really does depend on where you're born and who your parents are in order for you to succeed and how awful and what injustice, you know, when a single mom, 18 year old has a baby and is so uh, destitute that she doesn't have the resources or even the support from her family to raise a child and, and that child starting off. So, um, behind already, you know, if you will, you know, and so I, I think those were kind of the two, two, phases and like I guess early on in my career that really moved me to think you know I really this is kind of where I want to go this is what I you know for lack of a better terminology my calling I really want to make a difference for children and I was lucky enough at zero to three to work on a, a benchmark project that was launched um I I don't know if you've heard of head Start mm. which is a low-income project uh, intergenerational two family generational project really focused on the family but also just Everything really is a very comprehensive family support program, everything from health, you know, work and and education. And at the time, this was in the late 98, 99, we implemented early Head Start. So we were actually going younger, being natally to two and a half so that they can then transition to uh, Head Start. So it was outstanding to be part of the team that wrote and implemented and took to scale and put the RFP, It was amazing, exhilarating. And I, I loved that opportunity. And that was it. That was it for me. I was like, yep, I'm a child advocate. I'm gonna, I'm sticking with this. I'm until our kids are better off in this world. I I'm stuck with this or they're stuck with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. And it's, it's, it's important again, you know, it's, you know, when you see, Sort of, and, and the thing that really stuck out, you you mentioned the the sort of brain scanning and, and seeing being yeah. that yeah. just like, oh. oh, we can go like anecdotally, like, no, no, here's verifiable stuff that this is what's happening, and you know, I I see it on occasion, and and I look at folks, and I've 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 had this in this sort of like podcast and being a I guess a public figure, which I'm still uncomfortable oh, with. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, and people will say like you don't seem like you're from here you know and i'm from i'm from here i'm from baltimore yeah.
1: because
0: I, I don't have x y and z and it's sort of like i don't have the accent or i i don't approach things mm-hmm. in a certain way and it just shows sort of that sort of difference and and, and i say that in that yeah. you know being around like you know having both of my parents and it's not saying that someone who didn't you know wouldn't have that sort of scenario or a certain lifestyle but it's just go about it differently or even I like, yeah. look at you know, even my 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 brother or what have you, we had the same you know household, right? Yeah. And yeah. You know, I might go in this direction and do this. I chose podcasting. He chose, I'm gonna be a dad. You know, he he chose the very different thing. This is my kid. This podcast is my kid. But just kind of seeing how we we approach oh. things maybe differently and sort of the people we're around, and we had sort of, in my opinion, maybe the sort of a a more traditional like setup yep. and you know, having both parents and not having some of the challenges that a lot of people encounter you mm-hmm. know it wasn't like we had the, the the deck stacked against us and you know you learn as an adult and talking with your parents like mm-hmm. oh no it wasn't great it wasn't easy i was like oh oh that's what was happening <laughs> you never know those things but you know i had this yeah. perspective and sort of this matriculation as an adult yes. That, um, you know, I didn't have sort of that bearing as a younger person that it didn't carry over into me being an adult. And I just have a different perspective, I suppose.
1: Yeah, you're lucky. You're very lucky. (laughs) Very. Yes, you need to thank your parents.
0: I, I do, I do. Okay, it, it, and I think backwards at yeah. times yeah. of like these different forks in the road. It was like, yeah. if this situation was weirder or if yeah. it was more challenging, I might've taken yeah. left when I should have taken that right.
1: That's absolutely and, right. And you're like, and you've given, you you have not only the experiences, but the language and the uh, the relationship with your parents that you can have this kind of relationship you have. And that's wonderful. And so, um, you know, all, every child born deserves like what you and i have had you know just and and they're right i mean i think being a parent uh and you know you go through this with your podcast it's the hardest and most humbling any baby of yours any baby project any child of yours is just it's the most humbling but also the most rewarding you know and so i'm sure they would have horrific stories about you know Trying to teach you the life skills you needed to be where you are, so yeah, and trying to institute that in programs and policy. I mean, imagine what, how hard that is.
0: <laughs> so so that, that that brings me to sort of yeah. this, this this next question that does ping in on the 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 challenges that are there, mm-hmm. you know. And thinking back, uh, it can be recent, it can be further back, mm-hmm. but is there a, a challenge that, you know, really sticks out in this sort of transformational sense and, mm-hmm. you know, that it has shaped sort of your approach to advocacy, to, to mm-hmm. policy and, um, you know, kind of still influences you today?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, I think it's interesting because I think as a professional lobbying, I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to spend most of my career in, in DC and, you know, Regardless of what people say about DC, there's the federal of DC, and then there's a local, the District of Columbia, where I had the fortunate pleasure of uh, serving um, the residents. And um, there is no question that advocacy, lobbying at any level is very political, uh, very motivated by a lot of. Um, uh, I'm trying to be politically correct here. A lot of uh, uh, driven uh, um, decision-making. And, and you know, I, I think fairly on in doing the work and sitting around, you know, meeting rooms and boardrooms and seeing just how I was a minority, not only female, but also a person who's had direct uh, uh, practitioner experience that most of the people writing the policies and programs, everything from expansion to you know, education programs to preschool programs were white privileged men. And I I was, you know, it was it was profound thinking, you know, these, what I would deem non-experts are writing about what we institute locally, you know, and, and so part of my role was um, not only when Early Head Start was written into a policy program, but I had the pleasure of going in the field and helping newly uh, awarded, you know, especially Native uh, American um, migrant branches of Early Head Start, but also, you uh, really big, big urban city, uh, early head starts. And I think just the overwhelming sense that it is just really hard to implement quality programming that impacts day-to-day individuals. And, you know, it's quite a daunting task. And I remember just thinking back then, it's like this disconnect between the people who are writing these programs and policies, and then people like us wanting to implement it. And then how come there's this huge divide, you know, because as you can imagine, you know, looking at data and evaluation, it's very, very, very quantifiable, you know, and, you know, it's just very traditional evaluation. And, you know, and I know that so much about what we see and experience is culture and qualitative and how do we, provide that context and so you know i wouldn't say there was any one particular event but i think early on i realized how we all were coming to the table with a different definition of equity Mm. different definition of privilege and how how as i as i work and get you know into these unique opportunities in positions where i can have some influence um, and how we approach something or how we creatively problem solve, like how, you know, how do I master that in a way that actually is a win-win for everybody. And so, you know, and I also remember during, uh, the eight years that, um, uh, Bush Jr. was president, how a lot of Head Start was, you know, we organized to go into this, um, public education versus health and human services. And that was incredibly hard to witness because, you know, though we want as an outcome of those programs that they can go into kindergarten and preschool prepared and equipped to learn, but to shift the health and human services program that was wholly comprehensive and family centric and about empowering two generational strategies that really kind of managed all of the needs of the family then to turn it into an education program that was really hard to watch and kind of see happen and and we're still impacted by it now but um but I would say those were kind of the formative things that really kind of stuck with me and I think um really kind of inspire, challenge, motivate me now as I think about things. And as I confront conversations, good or bad and hard conversations with the mayor or with agency directors, funders, all of it. like, I mean, I think one thing they would all say is that I don't hold back. I really say what I need to say to get to uh, the issue at hand, which is, you know, I think Especially in Baltimore where poverty is so deep and the wounds are so deep. Like, you know, I I still I I hope for with your leadership and people who really want to tackle some of our persistent issues, that we come to the table authentically and not so bombarded with political correctness that we're actually not solving our our problems at hand uh, we have so much work to do in baltimore and our our residents deserve so much more so i i just you know i i applaud um the mayor for some of the creative ways he's doing it but we just have a lot more work to do
0: yeah um and and definitely want to, want to comment on that and give yeah. a, an example mm-hmm. in that sort of my from from my spot i suppose like I started this because I, you know, frankly, I got tired of just people taking weird shots at Baltimore cuz you're talking about the people, yes. you know, people yeah. who, you know, it's 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 racially tinted all of the things. Oh uh, yes. It, it's socially tinted, it's, you know, in all of that stuff. And you know, at times when I I see different things, you know, mm-hmm. like where I'm at. I I am in the data industry in my day job. I'll, I'll share more with that off mic. Oh
1: yes, uh, I want to hear.
0: But I, I, I do that in, in the neighborhood I'm in. It's a food desert, right? And oh. I've lived in this neighborhood. I bought a house in here, my old neighborhood. I grew up over here. So mm. investing, right? The 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 mm-hmm. thing that people say you should do, you get the money. Yeah. You know. yeah. And, you know, coming back to it. And I was like, not only has things moved out in terms of, you know, yeah. we might have had a nice, you know, at waters over here, you know, get something kind of fresh. Yeah. That sort of moves out. And you know i started asking questions and i realized that you know people don't like answering questions so mm. you know, as yep. to why is why is this happening and even in sort of the the day job dynamic you know people don't have a sense of like how big i am in real life i'm six four right I'm like oh. a, i'm a large dude right so <laughs> when i'm asking something and it it's, it sounds 10 times crazier like yeah. oh what what do you want again and so and and I'm one of those people that I don't like to play the game. I actively yeah. don't like to play it, but I've gotten a bit more savvy. And I think in yeah. having conversations and interviews and being able to talk to a lot of different people, it's yeah. just like, I'm here for the information. And and I, And I think one of the other things that you touched on, the political correctness of it all, I think
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a line where, you know, a lot of times you'll hear let's say in this podcast space, right? Mm -hmm. You know, white dude bros just, hey man, why can't we just say terrible things? It's like, you shouldn't because it's bad. But I I think in some instances, when we do sort of this, what we think is politically correct and so on, we're just using a lot of words to get to a point and we haven't really said anything. And I see it in in meetings all the time. And, you know, because I'm a little bit of a troll, I wanted to... (laughs) I wanted to do a bit um, com- combining some of the artist statements and bios that I get from folks, Yeah, yeah. just be in character interviewing myself. I would just do some <laughs> weird editing and I was like, I'm going to get in so much trouble for doing it, but this is what <laughs> I encounter. And I'm like, is mm-hmm. your work good? Is your work interesting? Yeah. And, and that's sort of the thing that it's like, can we kind of get to it and maximize our word count? You know, again, we, can we get to that? No. Yeah. <laughs> So that, that was my that was my aside of tightness, if <laughs> you know, but um, but it's real though. It is real. Yeah, it is real. It's real. <laughs> so, uh,
1: uh,
0: <laughs> I want to I want to dive into yeah. um the the Baltimore Civic Fund. Um, yeah. Those who are undipped, can you um, you know, you know, give us a bit about you know what the Baltimore Civic Fund is and share yeah. a bit of information.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for asking. I. Um, The Baltimore Civic Fund, uh, formerly known as the Baltimore City Foundation, was, oh, my gosh, I guess we're 43 years young now. Uh, Mayor Schaefer created us as a city's nonprofit. And really, our bread and butter, I would say, our primary focus is being a fiscal sponsor for our city agencies. But, you know, as a macro kind of lens, you know, as a mayoral fund for the city of Baltimore, you know, we're a nonprofit that allows us to create and focus on uh, private-public partnerships, innovative financing projects, innovative, you know, grant opportunities. Um, I think Mayor Shaver's vision was really, you know, where there are challenges in moving anything in government, you know, where can a nonprofit supplement and help so that we can empower agencies to do what is needed and to ask the hard question. It's like if city itself can't do it, then, what do we need to build so that we can at least try? And so my staff, my CEO always teases me, like I'm always like, let's roll up our sleeves. Like the biggest challenge is bring it on mayor, ask me anything to solve anything, any any big thing. And, and I won't say no, I'll try to fix it, you know? And so, That's a huge opportunity that we bring for the city. And we uh, oversee over 123 projects for the city, managing between $25 million, mostly philanthropic, but some uh, city and state and federal dollars. Um, You know, I see this unique opportunity for the Civic Fund to kind of play this role as a hub to connect Uh, And coordinate city programs in the philanthropic community, um, kind of dabble in innovation and new things. And uh, what I love is just the challenge of being able to uh, be a rapid response for the city. And we... you know, like you said, I, I, I think one of the draws to Baltimore was like no one was saying anything positive about Baltimore. And I, you know, I had a couple options and I said, hey, I'm going to go to Baltimore. And I have loved every minute of it. I I bought and moved into the city. I, I've been working here for four and a half, almost five years now, but I bought maybe three years ago and I, uh, I've loved every minute. It's There's just a, I love the grit I love I love the people are so nice and I I just there's not a part of the city I haven't explored yet I mean there's more to see but I just and the food the food (laughs) and so you know and as we work with the twenty. 127 or 25 programs. You know, we manage everything. When I say manage, really the fiscal sponsorship piece. You know, the the contracting, the you know different you know financing mechanisms in place to do any project, which is like fundraising to making payments to vendors. We manage AFram. We manage Youth Works. We manage um, a lot of uh, summer youth programs for Rec and Parks. Um, and then we've started some grant making for the mayor and the city. The mayor had a vision of really ensuring that our nonprofit communities, especially nonprofits that are really embedded in the communities, you know, we know there are challenges of trying to access federal funds because of the compliance driven requirements. And so we lifted up a grant program to ensure that they had accessibility, but that it was not easy process they were not burdened with the federal that we did the heavy lifting around the compliance work so they could receive the money and really do the work needed in the communities and so um you know we've been able to innovate in a lot lot of different ways and when i started we were a team of uh one and a half and now we're a team of nine with um a cfo and a a comms uh contractor and it's been the mayor's keeping us busy so I love it. I, I just really enjoyed and just sky's the limit for us. And as as long as the mayor pushes us to do more for residents, you know, we'll be growing and doing more. And it's been really rewarding. And the team and just really proud of the team. And just last week, we uh, launched the first cohort of the digital equity uh, grants and working with 22, um, you know, just small to mid sized community-based nonprofits just wanting to do so much and 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 they just to be among them talking about the work that they're going to do just oh i i just i hope you look into it because there's just there's just going to be so many awesome things happening out of that uh network of nonprofits doing work um so you know and, and making sure that everybody in church basements to um to civic centers to you know uh you name it, we, we're gonna try to get a uh, 5G there for them so that everybody has access. And so our senior centers, and so we're really excited about that. So um, yeah, I, I, I just, you know, I, I think my background in philanthropy and my background as deputy mayor and in civil service, like just, it's a really great combination. And um, I've been privileged to work here. So I, I, I just, I look forward to the many more things that we're gonna do for the city.
0: That's fantastic, and um, definitely something to be proud of as far as the the recent initiative. That's that's, that's really cool, um, and it actually kind of knocked out. You made my job a little easier. Knocked out one on of it. my very questions. So shout oh. out! To <laughs> uh, so so on that, I, I have yeah. a, I have one that I, I I added in here because um, oh. I'm I'm into um, how can I put it like as an Aquarius, or as a proud Aquarius. Uh, I'm into the sort of unconventional, right? So. Yeah could could you like is there like a project that comes to mind that Mm -hmm. has been like super unconventional that you're like no I think we can support that I think we can help that um in you know padding here but in in thinking it through like you know one of the things that I I keyed in on Mm -hmm. is sort of being able to provide that support during that heavy lifting Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot
0: of times and you know I reach out to folks and I'm like all right, I don't speak this. I don't speak fundraisees, if you will.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: In philanthropy in that way. So if there is a partner potentially that does that sort of stuff, can you help me bring this? Because I'm already doing this work, but this work costs this. yeah, yeah. And really trying to like paint that thing and people are very apprehensive to to do it because it seems like it's it's more work or, or whatever but it's an easier mm-hmm. lift for them yeah. and i like that you were you were touching on that that's sort of the support that you know um the, I, I can't i shouldn't say bcf because that's not that's not the acronym no. right no no we, we go by
1: civic fund yeah civic fund
0: so for yeah. the civic fund yeah.
1: yeah yeah i that's a great question um you know yeah. <laughs> You know what comes. I mean, a couple things come to mind, but you know, I think one thing I want—I want to challenge us as a city—is just, um, you know, what what do we expect from our nonprofits? Mm -hmm. And then, if we're going to hold them up to a pedestal to be the servant organizations, the servant leaders, we expect them to do to help the city really manage. A lot of programs needed by our communities and what are we as philanthropists and government doing to support their success yeah. and yeah. i would i would say that we're not doing enough and we're not doing enough in the right way so i have been because it's my personal not vendetta but my personal uh project is to challenge our thinking around, you know, if we want them to succeed, what would it take? And then really having hard conversations with nonprofit leaders to say like what they need and not be nervous about it and then actually investing in what they articulate for us. And so we were able to take a little bit of ARPA and the CARES money to, to provide some technical assistance for twenty of the nonprofits that we uh, awarded and had them go through different phases of development in terms of their fiscal sustainability planning and like governance planning, and it was illuminating. Rob, it was illuminating. You, you would, you can't. I was surprised at the depth of knowledge and education some of our nonprofits needed to actually be set financially sound and long term meaning that they were not going from grant to grant but that had they had a reserve of three or four months that that they had the governance structure they needed to really be able to dig into the work and not so much be distracted by all the administrative things and the lingering all over so you know I, i i think because we're not 100% 100% government and we're not 100% philanthropy, I think there's a little bit of creative space here for us to be able to be the broker of some really hard conversations and to have these um, trusted allies. Like we, we know we have to earn the trust of these nonprofits. And we've been working with a couple of them for over a year and a half. And their testimonies and their feedback to us have been amazing. Um, and to be able to give them what they need, or at least at least try to carve out what they need and partner with philanthropists on the ways that they need us to be. You know, we hear loud and clear that they need more general operating, multi-year grants, um, that they need a lot more support and leadership development and continuity in leadership. Um, they need TA that's not just a consultant to create more work for them, but a TA that's authentically going to provide them the skills and the tools that actually the TA creates those things and leaves them with that instead of creating actually more work for the executive, you know? And so these seem so minor to us, mm-hmm. but I I, I I don't think as leaders in our spaces that um, we think about this in an authentic way, because at the end of the day, what I want to say is like kind of like this concept of design thinking. If we're human centric, if we're child centric, if we're executive director centric, actually the design of the programs would look very different than how things are now. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if we want the ED to succeed, we're not making decisions about a report that person has to have. Or produce or that, you know, we're actually thinking, how are we going to ensure this executive is going to succeed? And what would that take? We need to support her physically, mentally, you know, psychologically. She has all the support, so she needs a coach. We need to support her so she has the back, you know, back support, like bandwidth. Does she have the right finance team, right? You know, and so it's a different way of thinking about approaching how to support a nonprofit, Right. And so I think there's things in our community that are being done that are have little remnants of some of the things I've been thinking about and how what we're learning. But I I don't think, you know, there's a a comprehensive way or any single funder doing all of the work needed to do this. And so, you know, we've been um, trying to be thoughtful, do some writing and thinking with um, some of the funders. And so I hope, you know, I hope that one of the things and legacy projects I can provide is just how to think about just ensuring that our nonprofits succeed, because I do think we put so much burden on them to help us help our residents without really providing the supports they need to do the hard work. And so I hope, um, you know, I hope we can get closer to partnering with uh, all the different stakeholders so that nonprofits indeed can succeed. And when they succeed, you know, government will succeed and residents will
0: succeed. Yeah, no, thank thank you. That that's that is great. Um, because you know, I, I can say from from my vantage point, you know, being on um one of these like sort of uh, listening tours, one of these calls from a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and uh, they wanted to get a, a take from um folks that are in sort of the creative community in the arts community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, is this grant amount good? Does this fit? Does this is this is actually mm-hmm. helpful? or is this process yeah. more challenging and really sort of thinking outside of it. I think ultimately they were able to put in some of these changes, sort of the key large changes that that came along, you know, within mm-hmm. a year. So that got them, you know, at the time they were looked at like, I eh, don't know if you guys are going to do anything, at least from folks in the community. And yeah. seeing this sort of work come in, <laughs> it's not like, you know, the biggest jump, but it's like going from, you know, this grant was three thousand last year, now it's mm-hmm. four. Or this grant may have been thirty five hundred, now it's six grand. And yeah. it has these these different sort of requirements, but it has this notion that we're listening and this is within mm-hmm. the bandwidth of, of what we can do. But you know, w- when I have these conversations, because I'm doing this, it's not a free project. Yes. Um, but I do this and I'll reach out to folks and it's like, you know, I find myself taking on sort of an, another role and mm-hmm. trying to Articulated, and I'm like I said before, I don't speak fundraisees, but uh, (laughs) you know, when I, you know, talk with folks and just kind of get insight from them, because you're able to have conversations. Yeah, they'll they'll speak on some of their challenges of being understaffed, being overworked, and sort of having resources to serve in that way, and that trickles down and impacts folks that are doing goofy podcasts or folks that are (laughs) doing like really great murals and things of the sort.
1: Yeah. For sure, for sure. You will never meet <laughs> so many well intended mission focused individuals than in a nonprofit space. You will, you, you know, we don't, most of us don't do this for money or for prestige. We do this because we are caring individuals who, you know, are driven by mission. So, no, yeah. I, I hear that. I hear that. And that's why there are times when I don't sleep well because I kind of you know, brewing all this in my head. But, you know, it's our calling.
0: So I I, I have, I have two more real questions left. Okay. Fire ones. Oh, Uh, okay. So so this this one feels very businessy, but I, I, I think it's an important question, though. Um, uh, and, in and, and, and it comes to mind because um, I'm, I started teaching a class, the second class I've done and teaching podcasters. So I, I was espousing to them, like, don't get caught on the numbers, you know, it'll make you not want to do it. It can be very, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's heartening. Yeah. So, so could you speak on what success looks like from, from, from your vantage point, whether it mm-hmm. is in, in terms of impact, in terms of sort yeah. of financial metrics, but what does success look like?
1: Yeah that's a fantastic question i've been asked before someone asked in a different way which was after 24 years working in anti-poverty and two generation like what works yeah and and then you know my obsession with data and um you know it's interesting i i came to the data space and kind of the space thinking like data would help us you know At least define what success would look like or metrics would look like but I I soon realized that actually so much of the social service space actually won't and can't be measured by like I said earlier quantifiable Data in the traditional sense of like scientific knowledge and you know scientific you know data points. I, I think it's hard. It has to be contextualized, and also there has to be, I believe, strongly because there's so much history in our, everything we do in our communities that there are our grandfathers and our our resident you know gatekeepers they they have to paint the picture of why a certain metric would be important and so for me in success for like residents you know some will be very easy you know did we fill potholes fast enough did we reduce crime and some of that stuff yeah yeah we're gonna they're very kind of linear kind of uh simple data points that actually we can just see progress or decline you know over time those are easier, right? Those are pretty straightforward. But you know, and and the mayor has a whole um, dashboard where he's looking at some things um, over time. The mm-hmm. harder things for me to define as like success is like when we know in the state of Maryland, like twelve percent of our children under eighteen live in poverty, and in Baltimore alone, thirty three percent. That's one in three yeah. children living in poverty, and what we call. A child living in poverty. The average income of a family of four is $24,000. Wow. That's according to Kids Count, uh, which is a data project out of the NAEKC Foundation. So shout out for Kids Count. Um, But that, I mean, just see your reaction. That is the power of data. Data does not lie. And I don't care when decisions are made. You can use data all you want but you know that is so much of our decision making in in government is about the vote and politics and and so you have to be careful with data but I also think like we have to lean on data to really show the accurate picture of what we need to see just as we see in any budget you know, every annual budget, you see where the spending is. That yeah. is powerful to see. If I mean, I'm kind of obsessive about municipal financing because that you follow the money and you know where things are going to be prioritized. And that is the same way. And over time, I would say, like, have we changed that 33.3% on children living in poverty? We haven't in a long time. Right. So if we want to change anything, that would be the metric, the one metric, because it is going to be so, so hard to move. The needle on that is where I would just, you know, pay attention closely to over time because... Our investments in, you know, babies is going to impact how they do in preschool and then how they do in third grade, where all of the milestones, big, big test scores and, you know, reading proficiency, math proficiency in third grade is going to dictate, you know, your trajectory to college and all these things. So there's enough evidence that we need to lean on some data, but I also think like we can't let that lead the conversation that alone is not going to lead because you and I both know a lot of outliers. I'm a parent of immigrants. or a child of immigrants. I mean, my parents did everything they could, but they didn't know what they were doing. You know, it's just like your parents. They they did the best they could with the information they had. And now my dad keeps crying whenever he sees me because he's like, he's defined success in me. You know, I don't know what that looks like, but he says I'm successful. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, so... I, I think it's complicated. I think it's really complicated. And if anything, over the 24 years I've worked, it's been humbling to know that we, we as much as I've worked in the space and as much as I've advocated for things, and yes, there are programs we implemented, we took, we increased, you know, chip, you know, um, you know, we've increased, you know, um, family or WIC you know programs for nutrition for women and infants we've increased those things but that's not enough this doesn't change the needle it doesn't change the one in three in living in poverty that's going to take so much more investment and so much more comprehensive approach and and it's not just the money I think that's the this other illusion that I think a lot of us have in government is like it's sometimes about it's always about money and I, I I mean there's some truth to that, but it's also leadership and 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 uh, public will and do we really want these changes or are we okay with the status quo? So I would say that it's not only about money; it's so much more than that. And so that's why, if you know, the tobacco and car companies could have lobbyists and advocates, you know, well, well, why not children in, in poverty? They deserve more and, and much more because as long as we don't invest in them, we're going to continue to have children living in poverty. And that's, that's you know, anybody who wants to go in space, I would be like, oh, can I raise two children who are going to, you know, continue to do this work after I age out? And I don't know if either of them will. But, I mean, I, I, just, I just want to, like, inspire the next generation of young people going into public service or um, choosing professions that really you know, inspired them and and I hope um there's enough of us moving forward to continue to focus on children because they're our future. They're the asset that we neglect.
0: You it's again you you did it again. You got oh uh, no you, you, you crushed my, <laughs> yes. my second question. So again just making my job easier. So you know that's sort of you know sort of that as far as the, the real questions go. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm overachiever uh, I, I don't like, it. <laughs> I like that, it Makes my job easier um so so with that i, I want to move into the the rapid fire portion of okay
1: podcast. is this scary is this good for me or not okay bring it on let's do this all right are you, are you gonna make my kids proud or am i gonna embarrass my kids let's see no you're gonna
0: be you're gonna be good you're gonna be good uh <laughs> So it's, it's four of them. Um, as okay. I like to give with everyone, don't overthink them. You know, okay, whatever okay. your answer is, okay. is your answer. Okay. What is your go-to karaoke song?
1: Never give up, Rick Ashley.
0: Okay. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't Rick roll me. Uh, what?
1: That's my son and I sing that song all the time.
0: Nice. What would be if it was if it were to, if you were to distill it down to one trait? What is the uh, uh, what is the one trait that makes a great leader? Integrity. Okay. what is your favorite color?
1: Green and blue and purple.
0: (laughs) You answered that like an artist. It's just like, oh, well, it depends. Here's here's my my palette right here. I like that. I like that. Uh, This is the last one. Uh, This is one that might be controversial. Oh, Uh, when snacking. Do you enjoy a salty snack or a sweet snack? And whatever one it is, tell me which one. It, tell me what it is.
1: You're going to be surprised. I get teased about this one all the time. I am a sugar fiend. And my favorite snack are not the almond, not the caramel, but the peanut eminence.
0: Oh, no, that was good. That was good. I know. See, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. I- we, we, we go to we go to the movies we will get a box of the, the M&M, dump yes. them in there um now there i'm go. i'm persnickety I, I i like the peanut butter ones a lot
1: oh i have not tried those i will try those next
0: those are very good yeah. um yeah. i have a i have a japanese buddy who put me on to um the the sake kit kats oh and it's just alcohol in it. I was like, "This is delicious." I was like, oh,
1: I'm gonna have to try that too. Ooh, I like, I I like anything imported. with wasabi. I like anything with wasabi. That that kick, the fire kick. Ooh, so yeah, I love it. But I, when I have stressful days, and I've been better now, but I will have like a two pound of uh, peanut MMs in the stash, and just grab a handful. And like, if my staff walk in, if my assistant walks in, and I'm eating. They, they know I'm stressed. <laughs> It's is, a is, sure sign that I have to, they have to stay clear for me for a while.
0: It's one thing, I would—I don't know if it still exists, it yeah. might, but back in the day, like mm-hmm. maybe 10 years ago at this point, uh, maybe maybe a little less, but um, Lay's did those flavor combinations of their chips. I
1: remember those. The those were controversial. They
0: were delicious. Um, yes, the, yes. the chicken and waffle was terrible, but the wasabi ginger... <laughs> Slapped. It was like my favorite oh, chip. That's
1: very awesome. Good. They you know they don't have them anymore. So that's crazy. I'm
0: gonna talk to a guy. I'm gonna get on a <laughs> blower, like look, man, I'm gonna need those chips back. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's oh. pretty much it for the pod. You got off the hot oh. seat, you, you beat the rapid fire portion. Oh um, thank you.
1: Thank you. That wasn't so bad. Okay, what's your favorite color? Let um, me get
0: over it. Go ahead. Go
1: ahead.
0: It's it's gray. It's gray actually. <laughs>
1: I, I was going to say blue, but gray. Okay. All right. Blue I used, to be, my blue used oh, to be my
0: favorite color. Blue used to be my okay. favorite color.
1: okay. I was a big
0: Ninja Turtles fans, and, Le- and Leonardo yeah. was the guy. So, you know. Yeah, he
1: was the guy. He was the best. <laughs> yeah. We went through the turtle phase, too. So... I I realize, yeah, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: I realize as an adult, I'm more of a Raphael than anything else. Oh, yeah,
1: no, 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 yeah, no, can't do that.
0: (laughs) This is aggressive. Um, It's kind of like the, you know, controversy aside, it's kind of like you might like Michael Jackson when you're younger, but when you become an adult, it's like, so Prince, right? That's who I'm here for. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a hard one. That's a tough (laughs) one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, that was my only regret. I, there were a couple concerts I I wanted to go to and, and Prince was one of them. Before um I got too old and I just never made it there. I always close when I was in high school, but I never got there. But I did go see a couple other shows over the last two years and I had the coolest kids. My my son, um uh, his first job and his first uh present to me were uh Tears for Fears tickets. Uh- I know. That was pretty cool. He knew I couldn't go when I was younger because my parents didn't let me, and he bought me tickets. And then I, my daughter, took me to Smashing Pumpkins, so that was cool too. So they have good taste in music. What can I say? <laughs> what can I say? That's so great. That's yeah, great. yeah,
0: yeah. Um. So that's that's pretty much yeah. it for for the pod, and I want to um, give you the the space in these final moments. Show yeah. the, the plug component. Um, tell folks where they can check out the great work yeah. that the Baltimore Civic Fund is doing, and to sure. follow you to check out some of your fiber work if you're putting it online. Oh
1: boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Um, <laughs> uh, please visit us at BaltimoreCivicFund.org. dot uh, org. Our website's being revamped, so check it out over the next few weeks. Um, It's gonna feature a lot of the projects we're working on for the mayor and the city. And, you know, I welcome feedback, conversations. I try to uh, focus on customer service. So anything we get, good, bad, or ugly, we respond to. And so just, you know, as a resident and as in service to all of you, just reach out. We're here to serve. And um, for my fiber arts, uh, I've been knitting. uh, I need. I needed. I've always been a visual arts person. I love going to galleries. I love, you know, museums, but as someone who needed, was sitting in a lot of meetings, and I needed something tactile and I didn't want to get over caffeinated. Knitting was my go-to. So I started knitting about 22 years ago and you will often catch me knitting in, um, you know, in council meetings or in <laughs> board meetings. It's a great way to, to stay focused. And um, I'm fortunate enough, my son is interested. So I've taught him, my daughter was interested. I taught her they're not sticking with it, but I, I at least expose them to them. And it's just been a great joy. And, and now that uh, our biggest spokesperson is Michelle Obama, who's knitting away. Now uh, knitting has been uh, uh, just a tremendous source of comfort. So you can find me on Ravelry, which is our like uh, social media for knitters. It's H Chung Nine, and you can see my 500 plus sweaters and hats and then things I've knit for designers and um, my love for fiber arts. So it's it's a It's, I, you know, I haven't thought of myself as an artist, but when you reached out, I am like, hmm, I am a fiber artist. (laughs) I used to knit, I, you know, knit a lot. I don't do commission work. It's just too much work, but I uh, knit for designers who test uh, patterns. And I knit a lot of uh, gifts for my mom, who is so knit worthy and wears everything I make, you know, regardless of how well made they are or how, you know, beautiful they are. She wears everything. So I just appreciate that. And um, i just, this has been such a pleasure. I, I'm not, um, I tend to be, you know, as a public figure like you, I, I tend to be quite um, um, on the down low. I like to keep, uh, you know, just focus on the work to get done. So um, I don't often have the opportunity or even ask to talk about kind of my journey and my Uh, Story, So it was really quite a pleasure. And just thank you for asking such thoughtful questions because really at the end of the day is meeting people like you and talking about the things I talked about today with you that really motivate me to stay um, focused and um, driven to still see some impact that we hope to see for our residents. So thank you.
0: And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Haesuk Chung for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture, and community in and around Baltimore. You've just got to look for it.